If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. If you were with us last week, you'll remember we ended verse 21, talking about repentance and faith, and how they were central to Paul's ministry of preaching and teaching. And last week I made the comment that each of those could have their own sermon, and I've gone and done it. I blame Molly. <clears throat> last Sunday afternoon, she wasn't here last Sunday. Uh, she was home. Luby had strep. So she was home, and uh, she listened to the sermon Sunday afternoon, and she was asking some good questions and pointing out some things that I may not have been very clear on. And I thought, fine, I'm just going to do a whole sermon on repentance. And you'll probably still have some questions or areas that need to be cleared up. But here we go. My plan this week is to cover repentance toward God. So we're getting a sermon on three verses, or three words in verse 21. And then next week, we'll look at faith in Jesus Christ. And then the following week, Lord willing, we will pick back up, working our way through this farewell address to the Ephesian elders. But I figure if, if these two doctrines are something the Apostle Paul testified to everyone about during his time in Ephesus, then surely I can give them at least one Sunday all on their own. So let's pray and then uh, look at repentance unto God. Heavenly Father, again, we acknowledge our need. We acknowledge that unless you remove the scales from our eyes and give us ears to hear, we are blind and deaf. So we ask that you would illuminate your word that you would teach your people, and that we would see uh, glorious things in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So this is an excursus on repentance. Where do you begin a discussion on repentance? Well, I think before you talk about repentance, you have to talk about regeneration. Or we would also call it being born again. New life in Christ. And I want to define regeneration for you. And I'm, gonna, I'm using a couple definitions from theologians this morning because they were much better at just clarifying it and giving a simple statement. This is from uh, theologian and seminary professor Matthew Barrett. He says, Regeneration is the sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit, granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. Okay, so that's his definition. It is a work of God where uh, spiritual life is granted to a person. They are raised from spiritual dead to spiritual life and are now able 
to repent and trust in Christ. So you can see why we might start here. Without this, you don't have repentance. Paul talks about this when he writes to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to add to it. He says, You were following the course of this unbelieving world. You were following the prince of the unseen realm. That would be the devil. But God, he says, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. Matthew Barrett continues to summarize this. He says, regeneration is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, granting spiritual life to dead sinners... This is not a work in which man contributes, but is a work of God alone. And then he illustrates and gives us a picture. He says, Much as an infant receives no credit for being born, man receives no glory from being regenerated by God. What role does a baby play in being born? That infant is utterly passive. That is a picture of regeneration. It's why the language of being born again is used. This is something that God does. And because it's something God does, he is the one who gets all the glory. He is the one who gets all the credit. And if this is true, then our repentance is not the cause of the new birth, but it is rather an effect of the new birth. What do infants do? They cry. They breathe. And those are things that, that are necessary and things that are important. But those things, an infant crying and breathing, that does not cause their birth. It is an effect of their birth and we see the same with repentance we we aren't born again because we believed and repented we believe and we repent because we were born again right We, we, we are not saved by something we have done we're saved by something god has done now it it is easy for us to get this backwards we can fall into this. It, it, just, it, it is natural to us. Man-made religion is, is the opposite from this. Man-made religion is what we can easily fall into. It says that repentance comes before regeneration. You do something, and then he rewards you. You surrender your life to him first. You respond to his commands in obedience. First, you repent first, and God in return gives you the gift of eternal life. That's the mistake we can very easily fall into. My response is simply that a person who is spiritually dead does not make a decision for Christ. 
A person who is spiritually dead is incapable of doing any spiritual good. A person who is spiritually dead is not going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. A person who is spiritually dead does not possess a contrite and broken spirit which is pleasing to God. We must be brought back to life. And after our God does that, repentance and faith are seen. They are evidences of this. I think this is important for us to remember. We, we know people who are not walking with the Lord. We know people who are far from Him. And we pray for them. We pray that, that they would come to know Him and be brought near and that He would transform their lives. And we have to remember that as we pray for those friends and family members and co-workers, whoever it is, we remember that their hope isn't found in them pulling themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps. Their hope is not in them, that old story, straighten up and fly right. They need God to bring them to life. And we pray towards that end. So this is where we begin when we're talking about repentance. We begin with regeneration, with this new life in Christ. And repentance is a a seed that is implanted when God regenerates a person. And we we see this throughout Scripture. In in Ezekiel, we see that the, the covenant Lord declared through the prophet that he was going to show mercy to his wayward people. He was going to give them a new heart. He was going to cause them to walk in his statutes and keep his laws. They would be transformed. But he says, I'm not doing it for their sakes. I'm not doing it because of anything that they've done or anything they would do. He did so out of his love and mercy. And so we see then with repentance. If, if this is true, then there is zero room for any pride or boasting on our part. Well, if that's kind of the starting place, we'll go on to what is repentance. And we talked about this last week, of course, but we're just expanding it out this week. Repentance, true repentance, includes a turning from sin unto God with a sincere purpose and endeavor to walk with Him in all the ways of His commandments. Right? Turning from sin unto God with the purpose and goal of walking in obedience. Right? So we see that here from the start, Repentance is something that only a sinner is capable of. Right? Just as only, only, only sick people are the ones that need to see the doctor, sinners are the ones that repent. And we also know that everyone is a sinner, and so this is going to apply to all of us. 
But what happens is the Holy Spirit becomes our teacher. The Holy Spirit, after this new life comes to us, He gives us a clear sight of our sins. And praise God, He doesn't do this all at once. I think if we were shown all our sin all at once, it would undo us. But over time, like an onion, layers are peeled back. And He teaches us the things and shows us the things that are offensive to God. And He gives us a hatred toward those things. And our soul turns from them to the Lord. You know, this, this involves believing something about ourselves and something about Christ. We, of course, believe in repentance that we are sinners, but we also believe that there is a Savior. And in hearing that, you'll begin to understand why faith and repentance are so closely related. They are distinct, but where there is one, you will also have the other. We are sinners, yes, and there is also a Savior. I think it's also important to talk about the motivation of repentance. Why do we repent? Molly and I were were talking about this. And of course, I mean, you could say, well, God commands it in his word. And absolutely, that's, that's true. You could say, because God said so. But what, what's the motivation? Repentance isn't just seeking a ticket out of hell. Like if, if your only motivation is repentance and escaping judgment... If you're only using it as fire insurance, then that's not genuine repentance. You could say that it's also not being sad because of the punishment and trouble you bring on yourself because of your sin. Like when we, when we disobey God's law, we bring trouble upon ourselves. Life gets hard. But sadness, because we've made life difficult for ourselves, isn't repentance either. So what is it? What's our motivation? Well, the authors of the confession help us. There's a whole chapter in our confession of faith on repentance, and there's a footnote from Zechariah 12. And they include this, because Zechariah declares that when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on God's people, they would consider the cost of their sin. Zechariah says, they would look on Him whom they have pierced. I think that's got to be our highest motivation. We mourn what our sin required of the Son of God. Zechariah says, We mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. We grieve bitterly for Him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Why do we turn away from our sin? Why do we turn toward the Lord and seek to follow Him in obedience? Because we look on Christ the one who was 
pierced for our transgressions. And we begin to see the full weight of our sin and what it cost him. Not only is our sin a violation of God's holiness, not only is it an offense to him, but it, his only son was cursed and pierced because of it. How's that for motivation? I'm turning away from this sin. Not just because I want to save my own skin. Not just because I'm sad that it has wrecked my life. I'm turning away because I remember that Christ was crucified for sinners. And through the eyes of faith, I look on him whom I have pierced. And so I detest my sin because of it. I think that's an incredibly helpful motivation to remember. And while still defining just kind of the basics of what repentance is, we need to highlight a strong disagreement we would have with Roman Catholicism. What we're doing in repentance is not penance. Are you familiar with penance? I want to be fair. I'm not going to paint a straw man. I'll use a Catholic theologian who defines penance. He says, It is the virtue or disposition of the heart by which one repents of one's own sins and is converted to God. That's all right. Next statement is a problem. It is also the punishment by which one atones For sins committed, either by oneself or by others. You, uh, end quote, you are punished in some way to atone for your sins or the sins of others. That's, That's penance. An alarm bell should be going off in your mind. Penance is the belief that You do something that makes real satisfaction for your sin, and that's how you are pardoned from it. You can pay, they say, and you must pay for all the sins you've committed after your baptism in order to win back the favor of God. You do pious, holy deeds before God to pay The price for your sin. That is the doctrine of penance. And it's a complete denial of what we see in Scripture, especially in Hebrews 10, which says that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And therefore, we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. God does forgive us when we turn from our sin to Christ. But he doesn't forgive us because he thinks our repentance deserves a reward or because we're paying for it or earning his pardon. I mean, just think about this in our own legal sense. 
Say a person is drunk driving and they hit a pedestrian and they're arrested. That driver can repent of that crime. He can stand before the judge and demonstrate contrition over sin and renounce that sin and promise to pursue right living and to do something to make up or pay for that crime. But when he stands before the judge, is the judge going to say, okay, your punishment is erased. Go free. Of course not. It might cause the judge to be a little more lenient in sentencing. But his repentance isn't going to pay for his crime. We, we understand this. And if we understand that, then how illogical is it for us to believe that our penance can pay for a crime against a holy God? Your repentance is not paying for your sin. And as easy as it is for we Presbyterians to whack the Roman Catholic pinata, we need to remember how easily we can fall into this. We, we mess up. And we think, well, I can do something to make this right. We, we hurt someone. And instead of just going to them and confessing our sin and repenting, we think we can do something. Maybe we get them a gift or we do, we do something to pay for our debt. We sin grievously and we think, well, I'm just going to punish myself. And in punishing myself then God's favor will be restored. We can easily fall into this. This is man-made religion and it cannot save. I want to remind you this morning that repentance is not a meritorious act in which you earn the favor and blessing and reward of God. Rather, repentance is an open admission of your inability to earn his favor. Repentance is a consciousness of your total inability to please God or to do anything that would deserve his blessing and reward. And this is going to lead to saving faith, isn't it? Because if we believe this, if we believe that we are unable to do anything to turn away the wrath of God and the curse and to win back his favor, our soul is then ready to turn to and grasp hold of the Lord Jesus Christ who has borne that wrath and that curse and won the favor of God as our substitute. Your repentance does not atone for your sin. Let's get into the practice of it. A couple things to remember as we put repentance into practice. 
First is that we can't be content with general repentance. You know what general repentance is? It is a sweeping admission of guilt. It's vague. It's broad. An example might be, you know, I am not perfect. I have made mistakes. I am a sinner. Right? That's general repentance. It's good, but it's not enough. We can't be content with it. And we can't be content because if we don't get particular, if a particular sin is not identified, then a particular sin is not going to be left behind. Imagine how frustrating it would be for, for a doctor. You go into the clinic and you say, I don't feel well. Well, tell me more about that. Well, I just, I don't feel well. I'm hurting. I, I think I'm sick. Where are you hurting? Why do you think you're sick? You know, just saying, I don't feel well, isn't, it's not helpful. You have to be specific. And that's the difference between general and particular repentance. And again, our confession reminds us that we need to repent of particular sins particularly. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? He was also a tax collector who stole money from people. And he wasn't content saying, I am a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. What did he say? I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He's being very specific. He's paying back the money he cheated from people. And this is particular repentance. Naming the sin. Highlighting it so that it might be turned away from. You know, when Paul writes his first letter to Timothy... He's, he's general in some places. He says, I'm, I'm the foremost of sinners. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Well, what does that mean? Ignorantly in unbelief. A lot of things could fit in that category. And then he gets particular. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man. He names particular sins. And it's important to note here that Paul is not repeating all the blasphemous things he said. Paul is not giving Timothy all the gory details of his violent past. No one needed to hear that. But he has to do more than simply say, I'm the chief of sinners. I feel like Paul's statement there leads us into the Final thing I'll say on repentance this morning, and it's the difference between public and private repentance. When do we repent publicly? When do we repent privately? When is it between us and the Lord Jesus alone? There are public sins. Sins that are committed against bodies. There are a pastor can sin against a church. 
You can sin against a, a group of people. Maybe you're out at dinner with a group of people and, and you make rude, hurtful comments. Maybe you're at a family gathering and lose self-control in front of the whole family. Maybe uh, you do something that is known. It's not hidden. Everybody knows it. And it's tarnished the name of Christ and His church. Those are things we confess publicly, the, the friends that we're out at dinner with. We, we repent and confess our sin to them. We lose our mind at a family gathering and act a fool in front of family. We, we confess that sin to them and repent to them. Those, those are the instances where we make a public repentance. And that, that is, it, is, it is very important to do. Then you kind of work your way down to, to semi-public sins. An offense against a person. You, you hurt someone. Those ought to be confessed as well. You go to them. You don't shrink from admitting guilt. You say, I was wrong. I hurt you. I sinned against you. And by God's grace, I've, I'm turning away from that sin and toward Him and pursuing holiness. Husbands need to be ready to repent to their wives. A mother needs to be ready to repent to her children. There is need for this. Whenever we wound someone, we're called to go to them and confess our sins so that we can pray for each other. It's important we admit we're wrong when we sin against family or friends and coworkers. <clears throat> And then there are private sins. The sins that are between you and the Lord Jesus. Not every thought you have needs to be known. Again, I mean, Paul does not go in depth on his violence. He doesn't tell Timothy every blasphemous word he ever said or thought. There are certain sins that aren't, aren't public and aren't against an individual that we repent of privately to the Lord. There's a wonderful proverb which says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Most of our sins, probably between the sinner and our Lord. And we don't have to make confession to a priest. We can confess to our God through Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And I wish it could end there. Actually, I don't wish that. But it doesn't. We've talked about you confessing your sins and repenting to maybe a group, or to an individual, or to the Lord. But what if you're the offended party? What if you're the one who is sinned against? We are reminded that just as 
God forgives us, we are to forgive one another. Jesus mentions this in Luke 17, 3 and 4. As we are to seek forgiveness by confessing our trespasses to those we've sinned against, so we are to be ready to forgive any who trespass against us. And then we have our segue into next week. I want to quote Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian. He is making some comments on the parable of the prodigal son. It's going to tie repentance to faith. It's going to give you a hint of what's coming next week. Bavink says, When the lost son has come to his senses and concludes the return home, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He takes the name of Father upon his lips, even though he is still far from him. He dares to go to the Father and confess his sins before his face, because in the depths of his heart, he believes that the Father is his Father. We should not dare to turn around towards God if we did not trust inwardly in our souls through the Holy Spirit that as Father, He will accept our confession of sins and forgive us. That's your segue into faith. How can we come before a holy God and be honest about our sin and be particular and name it? Because we have faith that he is our father. And he will accept our confession and forgive us. Let's pray. Father God, for the grace you have shown us, we give thanks. We acknowledge that there is nothing we have done to earn this favor. There's nothing we have done to earn right standing before you. And yet you have said, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. You have done so for your own sake, that your name might be glorified. So Lord, as your people, may we be quick to repent. May we be quick to seek restoration and forgiveness. And Lord, I know that this is no light thing I'm about to say. I'm not trying to be dismissive at all. But would you also give us the grace to be the ones to forgive when we are the offended party? Would we do the very thing that you have done for us? 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the ability to repent. And we thank you for the life everlasting that is ours in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.